ideas and new technology are causing seismic shifts in the media industry. Where are we headed? What does it mean? Keep listening. Media strategist Gabriella Mirabelli talks with the brightest minds in entertainment and business. Meet the innovators, the risk takers, and the disruptors on the front lines of change from Hollywood, Wall Street, Silicon Valley, and beyond. The future is coming to a screen near you. Are you ready? This is the Up Next podcast with Gabriella Mirabelli. Welcome to Up Next. I'm your host, Gabriella Mirabelli. My guest today is Daria Gutnick the CEO and co-founder of Bunch. She's a rebel psychologist and recovering academic. She dove headfirst into entrepreneurship and is now a two-time founder. Daria and her team are building Bunch. It's an AI leadership coaching app that can help people improve their leadership skills at their convenience in just two minutes a day. Daria, thank you so much for joining us today. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks so much for having me. You originally wanted no part in entrepreneurship and you were busy getting your PhD in psychology when you decided to change it up. So before we dive into the details of Bunch, can you take us through how you went from psychology and academia to entrepreneurship? It's a really good question. So I grew up with a very entrepreneurial mom. So I kind of saw the good and the bad sides of entrepreneurship. Obviously, the good sides being you have lots of creative freedom, you get to solve problems for customers. And on the kind of dark side of entrepreneurship is obviously like never have enough time for family, never have enough time for... (laughs) Yeah. um, Yeah, like just being dictated by the business, right? And I think... I concluded from that experience, at least I think at like the shallow level was, oh my God, I never want to be a founder. This is way too crazy. And why would people do this to themselves? (laughs) This is like way too hard. And so I kind of dabbled a little bit in consultancy. And I also was very interested always in research and kind of like like solving problems and like solving riddles. So I, I think started my career in a kind of as far away place as possible from entrepreneurship because I got kind of burned a teenager working in my mom's restaurant. (laughs) And but the funny part is that I, I really didn't appreciate, I think, all the things I learned that she taught me until very, very late. When in my career, um, being in my PhD, I found myself really interested in the topic that I was working on, but at the same time, kind of really impatient and not seeing how the things that we are researching actually find the rest of the world, because most of scientific papers, and it's particularly weird in management and leadership, Hmm. are taking between two, three to like eight years to be published. And then because they're only published in the very specific scientific um, journals, they're also not being read by many people typically. So I was putting all this effort and thinking, even though we put so much effort in management research and organizational psychology research, and we actually find so many things about what motivates people at work and how to create good environments, none of this knowledge actually finds their recipient because it's published in super niche journals and it's really hard to understand and it's very inaccessible. And so I think what motivated me to step out is on the one hand that I kind of felt more home in the entrepreneurial and kind of the founder community because the speed is higher, you can change things faster. Mm. And I felt just more, it's kind of my tribe in a way. But at the same time, I also saw this large opportunity to make the type of knowledge that researchers create just more accessible. And that's in the end what led me to Bunch as well. So it was a bit bit of a journey. Often looking back on life, what looked like a series of random steps can reveal themselves to be the perfect constellation of events. So how, how does your history 
inform bunch, you have this awareness of all this information, all these journals. And how does that inform or power bunch? I think the mission I have as an individual, which took me a while to figure out, is really much in line with Bunch's mission. So I always feel it's tricky for me as a founder and also as a CEO of the company to kind of hold them apart. Mm. Um, and sometimes that can be challenging because you are not your business and your business is not you, even though like sometimes it may feel or seem like this. Right. My my personal mission is to enable others to grow. So like I want to contribute to others, other people's improvement and, and enable them to be more than they thought they could be um, in their own lives. And Bunch's mission is to enable everyone who steps up and wants to lead to be an inspiring leader. And I deeply believe that all of us are capable in um, of leading others and themselves. Leadership always starts with yourself. And I think it's just so hard and painful right now. We talk about this too little. We have learned to talk about employee well-being and um, engagement and kind of company culture and topics like this. But what is still very, very underserved as a topic is um, how difficult management and leadership actually are and how little support there is. And when we don't support leaders specifically in the beginnings of their journey, what we get is like traumas and anxiety and lots of stress, which then actually then impacts employee engagement and well-being in a very negative way. So there is a, this is a spiral going on that I think we're not talking um, about enough. And so my mission contributes to kind of Bunch's mission. And, and of course, I bring a lot of my own experience as well as a leadership coach that I have been able to build upon when making decisions around the product strategy in Bunch. One of the things that we have seen um, that are very difficult for today's leaders is to keep or to provide long stretches of attention. And all our learning and training systems are built on the fact that we need to pay at least half an hour to an hour. And this is like at the bare minimum of attention in one piece. And when we look at other products in our environment, they have very short um, attention spans and you don't need to exert such big amount of focus to get value out of the content. And I deeply believe that the key to success in terms of growth and learning for individuals is actually to provide more edutainment type of products and services where we combine the learning and the training with the actual fun of entertainment. And I think a lot of those assumptions came from my time working with executives and startups because the schedule is just simply crazy. And to ask them, can you please step out for a three-day seminar where we're going to talk about employee satisfaction? They just never seem to do that and they can't find the time. And what then happens basically is that we don't actually transfer that knowledge anymore. And it's really, really painful for the companies that they are then building. Right. For the last few years, data has been a constant refrain. Data is new oil, data-powered insights, data-driven decisions. So it makes sense that when you talk about Bunch, you talk about the, the data that drives it. But what which data are you leveraging? What what? How does data function? Yeah. So we have a few layers how data influences what we are building and designing and how we deliver value to our users. First and foremost, and that's probably pretty straightforward, like any other content product, we do learn. And by we, I mean our algorithm learns from the reactions that we get from our users. So whether you like a tip, whether you listen a tip till the end, whether you give positive or negative thumbs up on a tip. And a tip, by the way, is the format um, that we developed inside of the app, which is a two-minute format that is kind of a mix between an Instagram story and a blink. So like a very short summary of a mental model and has an interactive element at the end of it, uh, which we call a quiz. Each tip 
basically is, is providing data um, on user level, but also on user segment level. So um, we do kind of create and we work with data-driven personas and user segments. And with each of them, we understand more and more um, which type of content is, prefer is preferred, but which type of segment and which type of user. And we use this information to recommend better and better tips um, to our users. That's kind of like the basic layer. I think everyone who is doing content is doing that nowadays. So mm -hmm. Um, very kind of sophisticated there. However, quite hard to get right, especially in the cold start of the user journey. So in the very beginning. So that brings me to the second point, how we use data. We actually work with psychometric assessments. So in the beginning of our user onboarding, we ask our users 10 questions, which are based on a um, psychological model that was developed at Stanford Graduate School of Business. And we basically get a good picture on what you as a leader prioritize currently. And this gives us a very good overview of what your preferences and challenges may be. So that the first recommendations of content are actually much more based on your profile rather than kind of previous behavior because we haven't seen much of the behavior yet. So that's, I think, second point of data that we, we use. And of course, we also are looking into using data for better recommendations. So what our users eventually want is Bunch not only being able to kind of learn from the usage of the coach, but also to help predict what type of tips they need at what point in time. And while this is a very kind of exciting and very, I think, futuristic, but also really cool need that we absolutely want to address, it requires lots of data inputs from maybe your calendar patterns to potentially also your biometric physiological type of signals that we are tinkering with and, and, and tapping into in, in like, for instance, Apple Health data set, there is a lot of interesting pieces and parts that help us understand what type of content actually is the right content for our users. So in the end, we want to support new managers with difficult and challenging situations and give them the guidance that they need in order to feel confident and, and find the way forward and any type of data input that we can use for that purpose, we are exploring. Interesting. So it's I, especially interesting how you solve the cold start problem. People are pretty sensitive about their soft spots and also about their data increasingly this is an issue for them in terms of data security and, and what happens with it. So does any of their personal data get used for anything other than improving the recommendation algorithms for what is served to them? Do you use it to offer goods, services, or anything else? No, 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 no. And we made this promise to ourselves and our users that we will never do this. I think the only exception in our terms and conditions is actually using the data for research purposes, which we haven't ever done yet, but we have secured the rights simply because we collaborate with research institutions and it's the value add from them to us is to help us improve recommendation and improve the service delivery by letting us use specific, uh, in this case, for instance, psychometric model, but in other cases, it's other models. Mm. And in return, we're um, able to provide anonymized data sets. However, again, this was never used so far. We have this clause in terms of conditions. We're pretty transparent about it, mm. but we didn't, we didn't use it so far. But no, we don't sell data for um, any kind of like advertisement or anything like that. We are planning to offer a paid subscription of um, the AI code. So we will be monetizing through subscription. And um, therefore, we don't see, we, this doesn't align with our 
vision of the product, but also of how I think this type of product should be marketed or monetized. Right. A couple of questions about the actual content that's served up. So the leadership tips, for instance, where are those sourced? And are there any cultural nuances about how leadership functions or behaviors function within a culture in terms of, so if I'm a user and I'm in London or Berlin or New York, certain behaviors may fall flat or do better depending on the location I'm in. Isn't that the case or is that not the case? Um, This is a very interesting question. We get this now and then. It definitely is the case with some of the recommendations, I would say, but we currently focus loads on what we call call kind of generally or universally applicable recommendations Mm -hmm. as far as possible. Not to say that leadership practices and tactics are not sensitive to context or cultural context. Of course they are. And to be honest, we also don't expect our users to use the templates and the recommendations that we give like one-to-one. We always encourage them to be mindful of their context and try to understand how to apply the principle or the mental model in their particular context. And from interviews, we also know that's how people pick it up so far. So Mm -hmm. we haven't had like lots of pushback on, oh my God, I did exactly what you said, literally and it backfired on me and therefore I don't like the app. But we were cautious about this. We're actually wondering whether that's something that would happen. Yeah, I'm not so much worried that people would put their foot in it because you're right. I think people are mindful enough of their own context that Mm -hmm. they're they're aware of that. It Mm -hmm. just goes to how much they feel the app understands them and understands their context. And so whether culture is one of those aspects that is fed into the AI to adjust I mean, with as much as our user behavior drives it, but not in a way that we would like artificially correct for it. Um, I see. I see. So maybe it helps to understand what type of user base we have so far. So we currently have, like we are quite US centric simply because we're a US based company to at least a large degree and our headquarters is in New York. And so we always have been starting from there just simply because as a startup, you really need to focus and understand whom are you targeting. And cultural context is really important, not only from like how you understand leadership, but also how much training offering is there and right. how many other options and like what is the competitive landscape and things like that. And so we focused on a, on a market that is on the one hand saturated, but also on the other hand mature. So the feedback that we're getting from US-based users is typically more critical mm-hmm. um, than what we get from other markets. But we also are super excited to see that we have more and more emerging markets. And so 40% of our user base is from emerging markets and r- roughly around 17% is uh, European. So that's the smallest chunk, actually. Hmm. And in the emerging markets, we do see um, specifically African countries. Nigeria is really big. It's, I think, our sixth biggest market, uh, but also South America and Asia and India are really interesting. And we don't seem to get different type of feedback from users that are located in these uh, markets. So not to say, again, that culture doesn't play a big role, but I think we're still focused so much on a particular niche, which is typically a manager in their first like 18 months of their uh, mandate and someone who's uh, managing cross-functional teams in a tech environment. And I think there's just so much contextual mass that overlaps, I think, that determines the the behavior of these managers to a larger degree, actually more than where they're based or where they're from. And so I think that currently kind of enables us to produce content that is really fitted. But at the same time, we do 
do user research with all our user segments to like an equal degree. So we speak to a lot of users in emerging markets to keep dips on how do they react? Do they give us different feedback? Do they have slightly different needs? And what we do see is that their direct contacts, actually, like the company they work in, the team they work in, industry they work in, actually drive much more uh, needs and differences in needs than, let's say, whether they are based in Nigeria or in the US. I was surprised how much, let's say, it lead developer or a team lead for an engineering team or a product manager are arguing alike and have very like parallel needs in Nigeria as they do in San Francisco. The culture of the role is exactly it's the much culture of the country. That's interesting. Yes. yes, absolutely. And so for the culture of the role though, there we do actually are like we we pay a lot of attention to that and we're developing um role specific content and we're experimenting uh, with that because we see that that drives a lot of adoption and people really want that. Well and that was one of my questions was how are you driving user adoption? How are you growing that? One of the things any consumer facing app that's the big hurdle is, is what's your user adoption? What are your numbers? You know, and then, and then how, what are your daily active user numbers? So, so how is that going and how are you going about it? Yeah. So we don't publicize our kind of daily actors or weekly active users currently, just simply because we're still um, really early and we have like fluctuations. Mm-hmm. We have a few thousand users on a weekly basis and we are roughly at 21, 22,000 downloads right now. However, um, I think your question of like, how do we actually get there is really interesting. And we typically, in terms of like growth momentum, strive for six, seven to 10% week over week growth. And mm-hmm. in most weeks, we actually hit that which is really exciting. Right. And the way how we achieve that is we, because we're a small team and we're a product-led company, we don't really um, focus so much on paid advertisement or paid acquisition. We have run a few paid campaigns in the past to just kind of test value proposition and things like this, but we never, um, we, we simply didn't have the means to be honest to right. scale paid. And also we are still in the freemium phase of the product. So it kind of wouldn't economically make a lot of sense. And we always have seen our growth strategy being a very organically focused word of mouth, viral growth strategy. And currently we have three content virality loops in the product. So where we actually give um, the user the possibility to share tips, but also share quotes and also share their leadership profile with social on social channels, for instance, or with messengers. Mm. Um, And we see that this gets a lot of adoption. And this is actually how we drive approximately 50% of our downloads. And the rest of it comes through. I mean, we have organic website traffic as well. And then there is search, of course, on the App Store and also PR hits, I think, um, are helping down then. But yeah, the vast majority is word of mouth. That's amazing. And I I really love that the the allowing the user to share the content, because I think that that's very smart and so much discovery on social and so powering that is smart because then it's already in their feed. It won't get dinged by Facebook or these others because, you know, it's, it's not advertising. It's a user who's sharing it. So, so smart. Your target really is these, these middle people, these young new leaders, right? You're not talking about seasoned executives. That's not really. Not currently. I mean, we see like a progressive product strategy that we are currently developing. And we're actually, we, we currently are collaborating with Amy Jo Kim, the author behind Game Thinking, who is really strong and really um, amazing at helping us really understand where we are towards the chasm and what is our early adopter user versus what is our early majority user and so on. So right now we are focusing on those cross-functional managers who are relatively new to their role, can be in the first couple of months, already 
understanding that they have pain points and challenges, but not yet have all the solutions. Mm. And we absolutely see the product growing for other target groups as well. There is a lot of upside and potential for additional features for these user groups. But being a resource strapped team like any early stage startup should be, we need to focus and solve this problem for one group particularly well. So that's what we're currently focused on. However, we do see that the value proposition of having an AI coach to deliver bite-sized wisdom in two-minute tips a day is landing with a very wide audience. So our challenge a little bit right now is that we're actually attracting a really, really wide audience with very different segments. And Uh. we are currently finding ways how to strategize around that and make sure that we can address kind of one user segment after the other while not fully kind of, you know, um, defocusing on the other. So we have a target segment and we kind of like do focus on one at a time, but we're trying to craft a strategy where we start with one and then we progress into the next and so on and so on. Right. Have you thought about enterprise adoption that especially if you're going after certain segments that you alert the human resources people, you know, here's a tool that is free and you can share it with your teams and new leaders. And this is something that can see be a value add for them. Is that something you're doing or no? Absolutely. So we see that organically happening. We have uh, really excited and exciting people leaders on the platform that are kind of pre-testing for the teams. Currently, we work together with them as partners to enable mm-hmm. their teams to be onboarded. So we don't currently target them as um Uh, business customers or anything like that. However, um, in the future, I think what we're currently seeing is as we are developing the paid version of the app, we absolutely want to strengthen our relationships with our B2B um, kind of, um, I, I would say partners at this point, because again, we want, we don't want to sell to them directly, but I think there is a lot of opportunity to, um, uh, form distribution partnerships to make sure that if they are keen and if they're interested in giving their employees access to the AI code, they can absolutely, um, do so at like a discounted rate. So we are currently kind of, um, looking at that strategy first before we, in the future, I wouldn't say we, of course, we see the opportunity in B2B and like I wouldn't say we're entirely um, opposed to that or against that. But again, I think the key to early startup success always is focus. And we start with the B2C segment mm-hmm. because we deeply believe that these new middle managers actually are widely underserved while executive managers and kind of senior managers get support in the enterprise segment. Um, typically for mentoring, coaching, and other programs, we see that new middle managers in particular actually don't typically have access so early to uh, management training and support. And so we see a great opportunity to kind of start there and then work with our B2B business partners to help and reach more of them to make sure that they feel supported. And from then on, we absolutely, I think, are looking to uh, B2B opportunities in in the future, but it's not something that is like on the immediate roadmap. Right. So in terms of your revenue model, right now you're in the freemium phase uh, and you had talked about paid paid subscriptions down the road. Is that is it going to be a purely paid subscription? Are you going to have, you know, we talked about advertisement user data. So it sounds like advertising is off the table. Is that, I mean, what are your Absolutely. thoughts? What is, so yeah. advertising is off the table, paid subscription down the road. Is that it? Or are you also looking at other revenue streams in addition to that eventually? 
I think at the first, we will be focusing on uh, monetizing at the core value to our users. And mm-hmm. as it goes to like for future revenue opportunities, I think the B2B route is kind of like the most promising one. Mm-hmm. But as a company, also given who um, is on the board and kind of like who are our investors, we are definitely looking to going for growth. So we want to be like the number one choice of every young manager out there. And only once we achieve that goal, we will be looking into kind of maximizing revenue opportunities. So currently our strategy and priorities growth above all, but of course we want to make sure that we're growing in a healthy way. So we want to kind of start monetizing to prove out the model and um, also unit economics and yeah, but for now it will be charging for the value we deliver at the consumer level. Now you use the tips you use are are from human human coaches. Yeah, yes. that's one of the things that they're they're human people who they created people, these tips. Exactly. Not only now, coaches, though. It's well, also, not only coaches. Um, it's other 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 people, but other they're other leaders and and experienced people. But they're humans, and so do you license that material from them? Is that what is? How do you how how does that work? So we typically work with content that is um, openly available on the internet. So basically um, a publicly accessible medium posts, blog posts, podcasts, et cetera. But we did start um, building up a kind of contributor program right now, which um, in which we acquire kind of partnerships with these authors and encourage them to contribute more content. And we're right in this learning process. So I wish I could like give you a very clear answer mm-hmm. on um, this is exactly how it works, but um, we have some really promising signals that are around kind of potential revenue shares and the paid subscription model, but also just giving kind of more visibility and um, promotion to content that actually drives more value and more positive user feedback. So nothing too surprising there. We are learning from companies like Medium and um, other publishers that work with this kind of peer um, generated and kind of peer vetted uh, model, mm. but we also do see a, a lot of opportunities for really exciting innovation there, which is also why I'm a little bit um, kind of don't want to just give you our black and white answer because <laughs> it's fine. I do I do see there is a lot of opportunity currently in kind of helping people to pour their knowledge and wisdom into smart systems and distribute it to people that need access to that wisdom in exchange for value, whatever value this may be, of course, I mean, cash and revenue split is one, but there is actually other opportunities too that these people are looking for, which they are not getting elsewhere in existing models. And so without giving too much away, we are actually really excited to We'll have to, we'll have to touch base on that later. That sounds very interesting. The, the, the other thing is, you know, one of the jokes with AI is that it's out to replace humanity. We're two steps away from genocide bingo and, you know, oh (laughs) my goodness, but you, you have these humans who are the engine of the advice. How does, how does that work? What is the, what is the AI party line about (laughs) how you relate your AI two minutes a day coaching with, with live in-person coaching. Are they meant to be complementary? What, what Mm. is the, what is the view? This is a super good question. Thank you so much for asking. It gives me the the opportunity to clarify. I think we're often misunderstood there because of the positioning. Um, AI coaching is not something that replaces human coaching. It's simply something that makes coaching as a craft more accessible to more people. Right now, coaching is only accessible for very, very marginal parts of population. And it's... um, 
like high, exponentially more accessible in first world countries. And so especially um, emerging markets or m- more marginalized kind of groups of population that actually already have disadvantages getting access to other resources also don't have as much access to coaching. And so one of the reasons why we embarked on this journey is actually to kind of um, make it more accessible. So we are absolutely not against human coaching. We are coaches ourselves. And we just believe that there is um, the the larger part of humanity currently does not have access to coaching. And we want to solve for that problem. And as we kind of move up this value chain, we believe that there is problems that can only be resolved in human to human interaction. And we also see the similar development in like, let's say AI therapy, where for a few of the use cases and a few of the pain points and situations, um, the patient, or in our case, a coachee can absolutely benefit from AI decision trees, and similar technologically enabled kind of support that is available 24 seven, right in the moment that doesn't judge, that is just there and responds. And this is a really important part of the service is to be able to get the help when you need it. And so for this, I think the technologically enabled solutions are great. Um, When it comes to, let's say, um, as a CEO of like a multi-billion dollar business, you have a really difficult problem and you really need to resolve it. And there is a lot of stakes and so on. We don't necessarily think this is a use case for Bunch now. <laughs> They're not going to pull out the Bunch ever. app. <laughs> <laughs> like, I mean, it's like we have CEOs on the user base. So <laughs> no, no, <laughs> of course, but I'm just, careful. you know, I, it, it, of course, it, it, everybody can improve, everybody can get tips, but it, it's good to see that you that they're serving slightly different needs within the same Absolutely, universe. absolutely. And we love working with executive coaches too, who kind of, I mean, it's very similar to um, the directions in the market that you may also see kind of what, like how do you enable passive income for coaches, for instance? Um, not everything fits into an online course, but a lot of things do. And so not everything fits into a tip, but a lot of things do. And so for these lot of things, we are there. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me and and explain your your business, how you got there. I think it's fantastic. And I can't wait to see how it grows. It's really fantastic. Thank you so much for having me and really, really glad to to be able to have this chat. We've reached the end of another episode of Up Next, and I'd like to close by thanking my production team at Up Next, my friend Rob Nutton, the voice artist who recorded our open, and of course, all of you, the members of our audience. Thank you. I'll be talking to you again next time right here on Up Next.